0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. What a mighty choir. There are more of them than there are of you. And that's actually great. That's great. I mean, we we, uh, we love the next generation and we need the next generation. And we long to put the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the the inner workings of the church in their hands because uh, they matter to us, and we train up those disciples who will train up more disciples. We're going to open God's word this morning to the book of Isaiah. If you have had the joy of tracking with our Advent booklet, and if you haven't even started yet, there are still more of them out on the counter. We'd love for you to pick that up. The reading today in that little booklet is from Isaiah, and we've got three wonderful prophecies about Jesus coming to save us from the book of Isaiah to look at. And as we prepare to open God's word, uh, I so appreciated Luke's. Testimony on the screens and uh, Dan's congregational prayer for us. And as we prepare to open God's word, let's again ask God's help and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, within these walls, let holy peace and love and concord dwell. Here, give the troubled conscience ease, the wounded spirit heal, the hearing eye the hearing ear, the seeing eye, the humble mind bestow and shine upon us from on high and make thy graces grow by the power of your word in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. We're going to look at a prophecy about Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 7 and then Isaiah chapter 8 and then Isaiah chapter 9. And in each one of these, I hope that you'll be surprised how these ancient, ancient prophecies sound so contemporary. Even though this book is so ancient, you'll be surprised that when you place the diamond in its setting, though the setting is ancient, it fits our setting in 2023 and into 2024 to a T. Isaiah seven was written so long ago, the events there happened in uh, about 730 to about 713 before Christ during the reign of Ahaz in Judah. Time goes by quickly, doesn't it? Do you remember when you were a candidate to be in the choir of 13 to 19 year olds? It seemed like a long time ago. Time goes by so quickly. Sometimes time goes slow, sometimes it seems to go fast. You know, there are only 14, only 14 shopping days left until Christmas. You know, there are only, only 21 days left in this year. And do you know, most marvelously or most tragically, there are only 330 days until the next presidential election Time goes by slow, doesn't it? Or fast, depending on your perspective. Sometimes it seems like things that happened a long time ago are irrelevant. Or sometimes it seems like things that are promised to happen in the future seem too far away. And one thing that I want you to see this morning is that when we go back to these ancient promises about Jesus, I want you to see that they provide precisely... What you, and by that I mean the deepest part of you, call it your heart, call it your soul, call it your spirit, what the deepest part of you needs today. So we begin in Isaiah chapter seven. And reading God's word, it says in Isaiah chapter seven, verse one, and I'm not going to skip the funny names that sound so ancient, in Isaiah 7, verse 1, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Verses 1 and 2 describe that the enemies of Judah are marching against Jerusalem. And then... It describes the reaction of the leader and of all the people. Picture Dan Miller as the leader of all the choir that was up here. It says that the heart of the king was trembling, and as a result of that, all the people were trembling in fear. What's going to happen? Verse 3, and the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand at the fierce anger of resident Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. And we can stop there. When the heart of the king is quaking in fear and the people in response to their leaders are quaking in fear, God says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do you recognize those three words, do not fear, from the Christmas narrative? They're precisely what the angel said to Joseph, Matthew 1. As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear, but take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. These are the precise words that are spoken to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And the angel came to her and said, "'Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you.' But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary.'" For you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive and in your womb, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And these words do not fear are the exact words spoken to that little crowd of shepherds. Over those fluffy white sheep in Luke chapter two, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, do not fear for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The word of God says in Isaiah chapter seven, verse four, be careful, be quiet and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. You hear that? Well, not only does God say do not fear, but then look what he does. God reveals his word, and in verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So God says, do not fear. But see, God is good, and God reaches all the way in to meet our needs. So not only does God say, do not fear, but God promises by his word, that the cause of your fears will be shattered. You see that? He doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He promises. He puts his, he stakes his name behind this promise. The cause of your fears will be shattered and will not be able to harm you. God is so good that he doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He gives his solid word, his promise to back it up. But it's even better than that. You go on in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Not only does God say, do not fear, But God gives his promise and his word that your enemies will be shattered. But then thirdly, God even gives a sign. God is so good that he tells you not to fear. And God is so, so good that he gives the promise of his word that you can bank the the release of your fears on. But God is so, so, so good that he gives a miraculous sign backing up his word, which backs up his command not to fear. The sign seemingly is rejected by Ahaz, but the sign is that a virgin will conceive. And even before that child is old enough to know right from wrong, Jerusalem's enemies will be shattered. And this is one place among several in Isaiah where there's a fulfillment and then a final fulfillment. There's a historic context fulfillment in the immediate future, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment because this text is picked up by Matthew and Luke in the New Testament. I want you to notice from this wonderful prophecy about Emmanuel, God being with us, I want you to notice the command to be firm in faith. Really a warning, isn't it, in the end of verse nine? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Are you firm in faith? How strong is your faith? What is your faith in? How strong is the one in whom you have placed your faith? Are you firm in faith? In the immediate context, this scripture is about Jerusalem or Judah, and there are marauding, terroristic enemies trying to kill the people in Jerusalem, just like today. We continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We continue to pray for the safe return of the hostages. We continue to pray that those who are, who, who are, um, who, who are in, in the endeavor of war in order to protect the innocents would prevail. We pray for the safety of the noncombatants. This still happens. In the context of Isaiah writing... What does he mean when he says, when the armies line up against Jerusalem, be firm in faith. If you remember what happened in ancient Israel, then you'll understand this is what it means. When little Israel encountered enemies, God said, trust me, be firm in your faith with me. Don't go wishy-washy what God meant and if you remember how it happened many times in the old testament when when the enemies came up against Jerusalem and God said be firm with your faith in me exactly what he meant was place all all of your hope in me don't make a treaty with Egypt don't make a treaty with this person or that kingdom or that kingdom don't hedge your bets Don't trust God, but also make a political alliance with God's enemies. The issue was that when Judah was in trouble and she needed salvation, she should seek to find salvation in God and in God alone. That's still what this means. When it says that Christ is our savior, when it says that Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel, what it means is that if you're going to be saved, you have to place all of your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Be firm in faith. Don't put most of your hope in Christ and some of your hope in good behavior. Now, if I had a vote and I could vote, I want you to be filled with bad behavior or good behavior, I would vote for you to be filled with good behavior. But if you're placing your trust for salvation mostly or partly in your own good behavior and somewhat in Christ, this is not genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith puts all of its hope and all of its trust in Christ. That's what it means to be firm in faith. It means to be all in. We could say it like this. Reliance on Jesus means renunciation of all other saviors. Reliance on Jesus means renunciation of all other gods. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With a heart, one believes and is justified. With a mouth, one confesses and is saved. Faith is central to Christianity. The New Testament always calls us to place our faith in Jesus, which begs the question, what do we mean when we talk about faith? What do we mean when we talk about faith? Faith means at least two things. It might mean more than this, but it sure don't mean less than this. Faith means at least two things. One, knowing the right content, knowing the right information. And secondly, personally trusting or personally internalizing that truth. It means at least both of those things because certainly to to have faith in Jesus, to have faith in the Christian gospel, to to be a Christian means that there's a body of truth that you have to believe. The person and work of Jesus Christ, the content of the faith. We are required to believe that Christ, being God, very man, became incarnate, taking on our human nature, though unfallen. And he, the son of God, is now our only savior. Because he lived a perfect life in our place. He died an atoning death in our place. And after dying on the cross, he rose again. We have to believe that content or that information by way of personal application. I'm praying aggressively, and I would challenge you to pray aggressively too, that you would have a gospel opportunity every day between now and the end of the year. This is the best time to talk about Jesus. This is the best time to talk about Jesus. I'm praying aggressively that you'd have a gospel opportunity every day between now and the end of the year. By personal application and implementation, what, what this means is, when the gospel opportunity comes, do you know what to share? Do you, are, are you comfortable with, are, are you dwelling in the reality of the information, the facts, the truth content of the gospel? Faith means at least two things, the content that we believe, but then secondly, it has to also mean internalizing that informational content or personal trust in the savior. Not just knowing about, but a relationship with. Not just knowing about, but a personal dependence upon. Not just saying there is a God, there is a savior, but saying you are my Lord, I bow before you. I repent of my sin because I trust you. So by way of personal application, not only am I praying that you'd have a gospel opportunity every day between now and the end of the year, and not only am I exhorting you to be sure you know the gospel, but secondly, I'm exhorting you to be sure that when you share the gospel, you're making clear that what this means, what it means to trust Christ is it means to follow him, to love him, to rely on him, to trust him. Indeed, you will call his name Emmanuel. He is the way of salvation. He is God with us. From Isaiah 7, I'd invite you to turn the page to Isaiah chapter 8, a second ancient prophecy that is very timely today. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 10, we have Emmanuel, God with us. The ESV gives the name Emmanuel in verse 8 and then translates the meaning in verse 10, God with us. But it's the same Hebrew word that we found in Isaiah seven fourteen. And I want you to see that this prophecy in Isaiah 8 is so ancient, but I want you to be surprised by how the setting fits exactly what we need today. Isaiah 8, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hajbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hajbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Here we have another prophecy of another baby to be born. This is a baby to Isaiah's wife. And named the name sort of means carrying away all the goods after you've destroyed your enemy. It's another promise of a baby to be born. Continuing to read in verse five, the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory and it'll rise over all its banks and it'll sweep on into Judah. It'll overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. The contrast here is between Shiloh, which is a gentle river and the river, meaning the river Euphrates, which would bring floodwaters that are violent and overwhelming. The Lord is warning that if, it, if they're firm in faith and they trust in God alone, there'll be a gentle provision for all that they need. But if they're not firm in faith and they don't trust in the Lord, then Assyria will come in like a flood and conquering them. And from here we go on to verses 10 through 15. He says, or, or verse nine, be broken you peoples and be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us. You notice what this means in verse 10. He's saying, if you put some of your trust in God, but you take counsel in other ways, trusting other nations, trusting your own good works, it's not gonna happen. But if you lay aside all that other counsel and all that other trust, and it comes to nothing and you rely only on God being with you. That's salvation. He's challenging them. What do you trust in? What do you trust in? Are you trusting in something that will shatter you? Or are you trusting in Emmanuel, God with us? And then we can conclude in verses 11 through 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call, verse 12, do not call conspiracy. All that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Notice that what we are called to here is a different fear. Did you notice that in verse 12? Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The text says that all the people of the world fear many things and get wrapped up in all sorts of conspiracies. And God says to his people, God says to his church this morning, don't fear what they fear. Don't get wrapped up in what they get wrapped up in. Isaiah is saying that the people of God should have no part in fear ridden conspiracies in a society that just sort of like like so many mongrel dogs just chases after every little scrap of news. But we should have a different faith and a different trust and a different focus. Verses 12 and 13 sure sound contemporary to me for being so very ancient. We live in a society with many conspiracy theories. We live in a society where some of those conspiracy theories have been proven to be true. But we live in a society where nobody agrees with anybody about anything. And everybody yaks with everybody all the time about everything, but they're not even coming from the same point of view. They're not even, they don't even have the same set of facts that they're arguing about. They're just arguing to argue. You know, what Isaiah is saying here is at the bedrock bottom of everything, there is God. And if God is real, then your view of everything else comes after your view of God. And he's saying to his people, don't run around in the world and try to view everything without God or you'll get wrapped up into every theory about everything just like everybody else is. Isaiah is saying if God is real, then your vision of God should be influential over everything. All other things take backseat to God. The way Isaiah sees it and the way we should see it is there's one thing that you should never overlook. There's one news item that you should look at every single day, and that is the living God. Who is he? What has he said? What is he doing? Look at it on the other side. It's a, almost a threat here, or at least a warning, where God is saying, God is saying to you, God is saying to Judah, but God is saying to you today, God is saying, if you treat me as unreal, if you treat me as not that important, you're going to be confused by every conspiracy theory that comes down the gutter. We are disconnected from reality itself when our vision of God is dimmed. We see reality for what it is when our vision of God is bold and bright. By way of personal application, can I give you this challenge? Can you consider this as a a personal challenge? What can you do to live the rest of this year, as short as it is, what can you do to live the rest of this year with God at the center of how you view everything? and what can you do next year so that God and your vision of God is the center, is the lens through which you view everything. That's what he's calling us to here when he calls us to fear the Lord. He's calling us to have this utterly consequential view of God, to dare to treat God as God, as the most important one. He talks here about the fear of the Lord. Is interesting, isn't it? In Isaiah 7, he said, do not fear. Here in Isaiah 8, he says, do not fear what they fear, but fear the Lord. Dare to treat God as the most important factor, the baseline reality in every other thing. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is that almost indefinable mixture of reverence for God and pleasure in God. The fear of the Lord is that almost indefinable mixture of joy in God's presence and humbled, bow on my face awe that such a God would bring joy to such a creature as me. The fear of the Lord is a love for God which is so great that subsequently my greatest fear is to disobey or dishonor him. And uh, what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is, is such a longing to please God that I am happiest when I'm walking with him. Would you notice one more thing about Isaiah 8 before we end in Isaiah 9? Would you look at verse 14? It says that Jesus will become a sanctuary for his people and Jesus will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This text that Jesus will become a stone of stumbling is picked up in the New Testament in 1 Peter. I don't know why, but when I flop open my Bible, it automatically goes to 1 Peter. Strange, isn't it? But, it, but this is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. It says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, he becomes the stone of stumbling that the builders rejected. He's become the cornerstone, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined so to do. Jesus Christ is that consequential. He is Emmanuel, the, the humble baby who came here to die for us and save us and Jesus is the rock that shatters those who defy and deny him he's both if you will not have Jesus as Lord and Savior you will have Jesus as judge he's the stone that cannot be avoided This adds urgency to our gospel witness. By way of application, I've said I'm praying for gospel opportunities for you every day between now and the end of the year. Beloved, this is why. This is why. Because he is the stone that cannot be avoided. So don't let those that are in your path and those that are in your relational proximity, don't let them be ignorant of how very consequential Jesus is. And then from Isaiah 8, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah 9. Marvelous promise of Jesus. And this is from our, uh, from our Advent booklet. I think this is the one that we, that we put in there for, for the date of today was Isaiah 9 and verse 7. I want you to see, though, that this prophetic utterance about Jesus that is so ancient, when we place the diamond in its setting, you'll see that it's so contemporary to our needs. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This section proclaims darkness to light. We sang these very lyrics in this worship service, mentioning Zebulun and Naphtali as the northernmost areas in the Galilee region that bore the brunt of the invading armies. That's where the armies crossed the border first. And he says, Where the darkness and the danger was deepest, now the light will bring salvation. This text from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 is quoted by Jesus. In his first sermon, in Matthew chapter four, there's the temptation of Jesus when he conquers the devil in the wilderness. And then as soon as he does that, that's like his last sort of private thing that he does. And then after his baptism, he goes forward publicly to proclaim the gospel. And this is the first text that he preaches from is this one. He brings the light where there's darkness. And then Isaiah nine, six and seven, is quoted in Luke's Gospel that that unto us that child is born. Let's read the the, the rest of it. It says there in um, in uh, verse three or verse four for the for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Church, here is gospel good news. I want you, if you would, to notice the word, the first word in verse four, the first word in verse five, and the first word in verse six. Four, four, four. It's a little three letter word in English. We could translate it because or on account of. This translates it for. It's the first word in verse four, the first word in verse five, and the first word in verse six. Why is that so important? That little word for or that little word because? Well, the flow of the passage is the answer to this question. How does darkness become light? How does degradation and defeat and dishonor become honor and salvation and victory? How does that happen? How does sadness and gloom, because your enemies reign over you, become joy because you're saved? This is how, this is how, because, 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 four, verse four, four, verse five, and four, verse six. And I want you to notice that we and what we do are not the uh, subjects in any of those verbs. Every one of those texts, every one of those verses is about what the Lord has done to deliver us. He's the one who defeats our enemies. He's the one who saves us because he's the one who sent the baby to be born, the baby who will deliver us. What this means is that the good news of the gospel is not a list of things that you have to do. What this means is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who was born and he is the one who will trample down as a mighty warrior those who are against us. And he's the one who has the government on his shoulders and he's the one whose zeal will accomplish this. What a way for the verse to end, huh? Verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal means ardor, passion, jealousy. Zeal means this exuberant energy that it is impossible to contain. Jesus will accomplish this. And who is Jesus? Well, there's a lot we could say about him. We'll just say that he's the prince, the governor, the one who's in authority. You see, it says in verse six that the government is on his shoulder and that he's a prince. You see, it says in verse seven of his kingdom, there will be no end. Don't buy the world's line that authority is bad. Authority can be abused. Authority can even become abusive. But authority is the gift of God. And God created the man and the woman, and he placed them in authority over the earth. And when Jesus comes, his authority will cause everything to be what it ought to be. He'll rule and reign as a king, the prince of peace. And notice also that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. How is Jesus the wonderful counselor? Well, just look at any of his interactions in the gospels. If the word counselor makes you think of, uh, you know, some sort, of a, some sort of a couch where you sit and someone with glasses and a notepad is taking notes on what your mother did or didn't do to you. This is not the kind of counselor we're talking about. Jesus is the kind of counselor who gives counsel every time he speaks to anybody who's a sinner and anytime he speaks to anybody who's a sufferer, because we're all sinners and we're all sufferers. And every time Jesus speaks to somebody, he gives them wonderful counsel And Christ is the one... How is Christ the wonderful counselor? Christ is the wonderful counselor in a way... Christ is the wonderful counselor in a way that shatters what contemporary people think about counseling and counsel. One thing you'd get counsel for is if you're sad or depressed. One thing you'd get counsel for is if you're anxious and worried all the time. And one thing that contemporary counselors would say is, if someone's sad and depressed the worst way to counsel them is to just say, don't be so sad, don't be so depressed. And if you're worried and anxious all the time, contemporary counselors would say, the worst way to counsel them is to say, well, don't be so worried. But I tell you, when you look in the gospels, when worried people come to Jesus, what he says to them is, don't be so worried all the time. (laughs) And when sad people come to Jesus, Jesus tells them, don't be so sad, rejoice. How does this not make Jesus like a bad counselor? How does this make him the most wonderful counselor? Well, contemporary understanding of counseling is like, if someone's sad and you tell them not to be sad, that's just like telling a paralyzed person to get up and walk. See where I'm going? How is Jesus not an awful counselor? Because when paralyzed people came to Jesus, what he said to them was, get up and walk. And they did, and they did. Because Jesus is the wonderful counselor who himself took on our paralysis, our anxieties, our sorrows and sicknesses and sadnesses, and he bore them all on his back. And he paid for them all so that when he says, get up and walk, there is a new life inside of you whereby you get up and walk. This makes Jesus the wonderful counselor because he is mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is the one who bore the just wrath of God so that we could be delivered this is Jesus. He saves sinners and only the sinners who cannot save themselves. Is that you? Then come to Jesus and you will find him to be the most wonderful counselor of all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on all of us here, sufferers and sinners all. And Lord Jesus, in your wonderful mercy, give us the counsel of the gospel. And in your marvelous peace, be our prince of peace. Let the government of our lives be on your shoulders. Let your lordship lead us out of darkness and into light. Would you empower us to trust you and would you empower us to share the good news of Jesus with everyone that we have a chance to share with between now and the end of the year that you might be glorified by making and training disciples who make and train disciples in this, your precious church. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.